What is happening to the surface of the planet Earth and to California's Central Valley? The concerns we have here in Modesto are varied. We need to look at the effects that the global temperatures are having on our soil and various aspects of life in an agricultural community. What are the honest, hardcore facts about reckless human behavior that cause the peril that humans make for each other? And what can we do to take better care of each other? Great Mother Earth, her promise in peril. We are curators of factual recordings so that you can learn and navigate for yourself this terrain of the perils and the promises right here on kcbpradio.org sponsored by the Peace Life Center of Modesto. Later on in today's show, you'll hear from Brian Terrell regarding life in Afghanistan and what's been happening on our Mother Earth over there, uh, especially at the hands of the U.S. military. Before we get to that piece, we want to talk about electromagnetic hypersensitivity. I am going to spend some time talking to a woman who has an extreme level of sensitivity to electromagnetic energy. Um, we call that electromagnetic hypersensitivity, EHS. Now, what's happened is uh, electromagnetism has existed since the planet was formed, and humans on Earth have found ways to... Uh, concentrate the energy in forms of radio waves, um, microwaves, satellites, all the kinds of uh, technologies that we've used, especially in the past 10 years where more and more people are um, holding on to mobile phones. And therefore, a, a greater amount of people are discovering their sensitivities to this concentrated energy in the pocket in the form of 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, and the soon-to-be 5G cell phones or mobile phones. I am Pegasus here with uh, The Peril and the Promise. We're talking with Lucille Imhoff using a, a mobile phone to record this with. I do not use a cell phone. I will never again the rest of my life put a cell phone against my head, my ear, mm. ever. Right now I'm feeling tingling in my ears, but I, I can endure it. I've been enduring it. I've learned to um, just do things that I can do on a daily basis to avoid it so that when I am around it, I can just endure it. I don't want to endure it all the time, you know, 24-7. So during this, these last eight years, I've refused to put it against my head right, ever again. Yeah. My husband is wonderful. He doesn't even own a cell phone. He's helped me do everything to um, during my day-to-day -day living to help me avoid the symptoms. So he's been great. So when I need to turn on my cell phone in the car, we roll our windows down a little bit, even if it's raining, and um, I'll text or I'll use um, the speakerphone. And my kids right, will say, oh, here, somebody wants to talk to you. I go, put it on speakerphone. Yeah, exactly. Anybody that hands me a cell phone and says, here, so-and-so wants to talk to you, yeah. put it on speaker. Right, and you've taught in regular schools. There was a time when no cell phones were allowed in the classroom or the office. and um, That was the school had the school. that policy. The school used to have that policy. Now they can use their phones. And I don't know how the teachers are managing it. I, I teach homeschool, so I don't have a classroom full of students. So, um, But anyway, a student came in, had his cell phone on, and, I, and it was in his backpack. And I just asked him, because I could started feeling it. And I said, do you have your cell phone? And he looked, and I go, okay, you need to turn that off. 
I could tell. He was, he was looked at me funny, like, how did you know? Superpower. Yeah. And then one night I was sleeping. We had a rule in our house where um, our children, well, our, our, our youngest daughter was here the last, when I started getting the symptoms. And so the rule was the cell phones had to be away from us, charging at night. Well, one night my daughter snuck her phone into her room for the night. Well, I woke up with my fingers stiff. I couldn't straighten it. My my finger was stiff and my hand was hurting. Because your room is close to my hers? Room, yeah, we're, she's on the other side of the wall where I was sleeping. So I got up. I went to the charging station. No cell phone was there. I, I opened the door. Two o'clock in the morning, I opened the door. Do you have your cell phone? <laughs> Caught her red-handed. Yeah. Put it out there right now. <laughs> so out, out it went in the charger like it's supposed to be. Right. And then, um, and then all then of a sudden, I, yeah, out. all of a sudden, my fingers started straightening out, and I could go like this. Okay, good. I went back to sleep. Lucille, what else can you say about the problems that happen when people are exposed to mobile phone radiation? Cracked phones and phones that are not fully charged draw way more radiation than a fully charged decent. Uh, phone. That's Good thing cracked. I charged this uh, device yeah, before I started recording. Um, I've been around so many kids with cracked phones because it happens. They drop yeah, them, yeah. it cracks. <clears throat> and then they're using them and they're drawing so much more radiation to themselves with it. I always say to them, get that fixed. Get that yeah. cracked phone fixed because you're drawing more radiation. I tell them. I, I have students yeah. who can't sleep at night. I say to them, where do you keep your cell phone at night? Right by my head, by my pillow. I listen to my music. Well, put it away from you at night and you'll probably sleep better. I try to warn so many people. I doubt many of them because if you don't feel it and you don't think yeah. that it's hurting you, it's a silent thing and it's and it's people that don't, they don't feel it. So they just think, oh, it's, it doesn't matter. But, yeah. but when you can feel it, then you realize that... Um, it is, it's out there, and it's, it's really, it's kind of scary. Right, I, I, yeah, yeah, I understand that um, it's, uh, it could either be seen as a, a special power to be able to sense that, but it could also be seen as a disability, um, and because of the hazards of what could happen to uh, humans, especially younger people, uh, when they're exposed to this kind of radiation and the, the health impacts that have already been documented, at least in some countries. I do know one country, it's uh, South Korea, where the kids, kids are using their cellular devices so much, they're having problems with their health and, and just coping. I mean, e emotionally, like um, depression and anxiety and those kind of things uh, are exact, you know, are more in with the cellular radiation. That's, those are the problems that you can have. They're recognizing that in Korea. They're documenting that. Yes. Yes. And they're taking action because of it. Yes, they're doing they're 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 restricting kids cannot be on their cellular devices from like 10 or 11 at night until 7 in the morning something like that. They're setting rules. What about in Europe or other countries where they're going to have more respect for people that have VHS? They do. I all the books I've been reading, they're uh, Switzerland, uh, all the European countries, they really they they have more rules, more regulations than our country. Um, I've noticed that and I've read about it. So uh, maybe, maybe I'll end up moving there. I don't know. <laughs> do, you, do you have any analysis as to why those, um, sociologically, why those governments, why those people, those cultures 
care more or understand more or believe more in the reality? Yeah, I'm not sure if maybe someone in power started you know, having symptoms and maybe they decide, I don't know. But so. South Korea cares and is, at least culturally, whether it's they're, legal or not, they're doing... Exactly. I mean, they're realizing the effects that it's having on, on children, especially babies and children. And yeah. this this book here talks about the horrors of the of infants and what they're going to be doing um, with them. This book is the Non-Tinfoil Guide to EMFs by Nicholas Pinault. And it came out in... Um, it's the most recent one I've purchased, maybe in the got multiple, cover. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. So tell me more about how you um, then began to study and okay. learn about it and what you what know you? globally or in the United States. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, um, the more I read and the more I found out what I could do as an individual to eliminate um, a lot of it coming at me day to day. So everything that we have in our home is wired I use a corded phone with the old-fashioned. Um, at my office, I have a corded phone. My computers are all wired. Um, we use Wi-Fi very rarely. At, we turn off the power to the, our bedroom when, where we sleep so that we have no electrical circuits going on there. So that Because when you sleep, you rejuvenate, and you kind of yeah. get yourself back up going. So I try to get a good night's sleep that way. So everything you can do to have uh-huh. some people I know have even you know turn off the breaker box of the house yeah, just, just to go. Yeah, we yeah. don't do the whole house. We do the room, the bedroom, where we're closest yeah. to you. Yeah. yeah, not because, because you just see it happening, but no. what do you feel okay. that's happening? Yeah, so I I start getting a sensation in my head, tingling and pressure. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's a, a feeling, and my heart starts sometimes. It's different with, and I, I always wondered, is it AT and T does my heart, and Verizon does my ear, and you know, different or ones affect the, me. Or is it like the Samsung device Samsung, that's got, or a Samsung broken screen, makes, or whatever. you know, makes tinnitus, you know. Yeah. Um, so I get like a, it's like it's not a, a loud noise, it's like a sizzling, and then it's a pressure and tingling in my head and my ears and my heart, and sometimes it's a pain in my head, like a sharp jetting. Towards the back yeah, of your head. because that's where that one time, you know, I didn't know. I was just doing my thing. And all of a sudden, I felt this sharp pain and my, you know, the feelings. And Behind I your back, ears. Yeah, and I looked back, and sure enough, there it was. I, I didn't see, I didn't know she had it. We've been talking to Lucille Imhoff, who lives in the Central Valley of California, and discovered that she had electromagnetic hypersensitivity about eight years ago, around 2010 and now has a better way of living, making sure that the environment around her when it comes to electromagnetic energy and the exposure that all of us have uh, the capacity to um, minimize the amount of EMFs that we are exposed to, which is more important for people who have EHS to take such control. And we'll hear part two of that interview next week on The Promise and the Peril. Brian Terrell and I am I live at the Catholic Worker Farm in Malloy, Iowa, Strangers and Guests. I'm a co-coordinator for Voices for Creative Nonviolence, a uh, council member for the Nevada Desert Experience, and I've been a part of the Catholic Worker movement since I dropped out of college in 1975 and moved to New York and have been with it since then.
I've traveled to uh, war zones and other places of conflict. Uh, been very grateful for those opportunities. I've been five times, I believe, to Afghanistan in the last few years. The last time was just in September. I have been to Iraq and Bahrain, uh, Palestine and Israel. I've traveled to Russia, to um, Korea, to various uh, countries in Central America. And I've traveled in Europe uh, in the 1980s, especially a part of the anti-nuclear weapons uh, movement there. And uh, yeah, I'm just uh, very grateful for the opportunity to be able to get around the world and to uh, meet people who are struggling for peace and often under very uh, difficult circumstances. And I find great hope to see the creativity and resilience of people for whom the uh, for all, all appearance, should not have hope and should not be able to see a better future. And I think they're the ones who can point us to how we can uh, get out of the mess the world is in. So, Brian, can you tell me about the weaponized drones and the surveillance drones flying over Afghanistan? So the drones just circle around, and they can fly. They're very small, and they can fly as high as 30,000 feet where they can't be seen or heard and still get the... Uh, get the video and, and, and over a period of weeks and they can they can attack from from that high so he's watching these two men for weeks and he says we're the ultimate voyeurs because at night they use infrared and in Afghanistan in the summertime people sleep on their roofs and he could you know he's, so he's watching these these men and he's watching them go to work and go to their mosque and pick up their kids at school and watching them making love to their wives on the rooftop and just just this this very very intimate uh, incursion into, into these men's lives and then the order came to kill them and unlike a fighter plane which is going at almost supersonic speed and is gone before they see the the plume of smoke rises from the the impact of their bombs the drone has a little putt-putt motor, and they and they watch what's going on on the ground. And he sees these men dismembered before before his eyes, and he doesn't know why the order came. Somebody else saw something that they determined they were a danger. He says, "I didn't see anything to think that they were dangerous." He said, "I did see enough to know they were good daddies." You're listening to the voice of Brian Terrell, farmer and a pacifist and a writer, describing his uh, dialogue with a U.S. soldier who's a weaponized drone pilot. This man can't sleep. You know, this haunts him. This and other things haunted him. And I, and I also had the, recently had a, the opportunity to talk to a young man who had been in the infantry in Afghanistan, who had actually been involved in face-to-face -face fighting and he told me he didn't like it and he didn't like the war and the politics but when it comes to the killing that he did he knew he, he ironically the way, he's, the way he put it is I don't lose sleep over it because he said I'm there with my friends and we have guns and some people come at us and they have guns and they shoot, and we shoot, and some of us die, and some of them die. 
And it really sucks, but I wish it didn't happen, but he didn't lose sleep over it. And there's a real irony of that in that, that um, the fact that, you know, I'm a pacifist, I don't want to kill anybody for any reason at all, but I sure understand a huge difference between killing a stranger who's trying to kill me, <laughs> whom I know nothing about this person other than that they have a gun and they're trying to kill me. A huge difference between that and killing somebody who's 7,000 miles away, who can never hurt me and poses no danger to my friends or my family, and who I've seen go about their daily lives, and I, you know, and that that that, that you know them. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, you know, this is who's being being attacked and who's being uh, being targeted. You know, you you just have to expect an escalation on the other side. Mm -hmm. Now the question was brought up: who's who's being killed? Who's being attacked in this? Some of you might remember several years ago, Stanley McChrystal was the head of U.S. general, army general, who was the head of NATO forces in Afghanistan. And he got fired because an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. And he said that everything that we're doing in Afghanistan is fueling insurgency and fueling uh, terrorism. He said, every person that we kill, we're creating 10 new enemies. Mm -hmm and saying that the drone program is so frightening and so humiliating for the people there that even people who are not affected by it personally, who otherwise would have no reason to not be our friends, are turning against us. So, but who are, who's being targeted? Um, we, we know that uh, under the Obama administration that he would have a meeting every Tuesday Mm -hmm. and meet with his, his staff, uh, his intelligence people, and they would determine who was going to be targeted. Yes, thanks for bringing that back up, Brian, about the um, heavy moral issue that whoever is president of the United States is responsible for choosing who will be targeted for drone assassination, assassination by drone warfare. I wanted to go to that other topic as well about the uh, environmental cost of modern warfare. You know, we're all concerned about global warming and the things that contribute to that, but the, you know, an F-16 fighter plane within a few hours uses more fossil fuel than, than many of us, even profligate North Americans, will ever use in our lives. In a whole lifetime, not just a year or something right, like that. Right, right. It's, it's a few it's, minutes of one F-16. It's fantastic. And the uh, and that's whether they're training or whether they're oh, flying across the ocean. Right, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The, the, the training and the, the just getting them across the ocean. And then we're, and then we're moving things like uh, what, a, what an Abrams tank to transport one and a C-130 oh. to bring it. And, and, and also, when these tanks are operating in the field, an Abrams tank requires a fleet of like a dozen other vehicles, including fuel tankers, because uh -huh. the Abrams tank, I think this is, it's not three miles a gallon. It's three gallons a mile uh -huh. to drive uh -huh. an Abrams tank. And these things are being driven hundreds of miles over the desert. Wow. You know, um, you're going to have to ride. Using this. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You're going you're gonna to have to drive, ride a bicycle a long time to, to, to offset 
<laughs> a couple miles of, 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 of yeah. these tanks. Or plant a whole forest of trees. To <laughs> and and, and just the, you know, the, the fact that what we're often picking on to bomb mm-hmm. are the oil refineries, the... Uh, um, Insane. Uh, the, the, the water treatment plants, the sewage treatment plants... And and then the, the you know the cost of war to the to the uh, environment. Um, I'm very moved by the efforts that my young Afghan friends have to be doing things like recycling and uh, being very careful about what they burn to keep warm. Mm-hmm. And uh, but in a city full of millions and millions of refugees who are living right on the margin. It's very difficult to have concern for that, and there, mm-hmm. there, people are. The, you know, the city has been increasing, uh, like you know, from two hundred thousand when this all this started, or less than half a million to more than six million people, mm-hmm. and they're drilling wells, and there's no sewage yeah. uh, treatment. They're drilling drilling wells without any kind of um, plan or oversight, and the water table is dropping uh, a meter and a half every year. In that area, yeah. uh, no, it, this is it, it, it's. Uh, so I've seen the population increase, and Kabul is is in a bowl. It's mountainous on the sides, and it's very very high elevation, and it's very dry. Mm. And with every visit, I see the uh, adobe huts and packing crates that people are living in, growing up and up the mountain. The most of the people heat by burning garbage. <clears throat> it's uh, uh, you know, a plastic bottle has a great BTU value, mm-hmm. and when your family is cold, you don't worry about the the ecological effects or the or the longer term health effects. You it's survival. So we're it's very good that we're conscious about our environment, and but we have to realize that through our taxes and through our voting and our uh, not speaking out, we are contributing to the the actual destruction, active destruction of the of the environment that um, simply cannot be offset by our personal lifestyle choices. As important as they are, mm-hmm. if we're concerned about the environment, we need to clean up our own act. And making opposition to war needs to be a part of our environmental concern, our environmental activism. Again, we've been speaking with Brian Terrell, a farmer, a pacifist, and a writer from Iowa when he visited the California Central Valley and the Sierra Nevada Mountains to give a talk on drone warfare, uh, life in Afghanistan amidst war. And uh, in a second here, he's going to Give us an update on the nuclear weapons situation in the United States. So the the, the drone wars are bringing the war home, and also um, we're at a time of very great peril of nuclear annihilation with a president who's bragging about the size of his nuclear button. But I've been reading a lot lately that people are beginning to be frightened of, be concerned of a program of 
modernizing nuclear weapons. And it was, until recently they were saying a trillion dollars, now they're saying 1.7 trillion, and I'm sure it's going to be continuing up, of modernizing our, our weapons, nuclear weapons uh, stockpile. And there were, one of the places where they're working on that is the nuclear test site in Nevada. Yeah, modernized means making them smaller. They're still bigger than the Hiroshima bomb. <laughs> smaller, more usable, more usable. You know, isn't the thing what Donald Trump said as a as a as a candidate? Why have nuclear weapons if you can't use them? But so this goes back to to October of 2016, before the election. See, this Obama, President Obama started this. This is not Trump's idea. Now he's getting the blame or the credit, depending on your your point of view. <laughs> But back in Octo October of 2016, we were, the Catholic Worker had a national gathering in Las Vegas, and we went out to the nuclear test site as a part of our gathering. And just like the day before our gathering, there was, there was a, uh, a test of where actually two B-2 bombers, stealth bombers, took off from Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, and flew to Nevada, and they dropped these uh, dummy B-61 nuclear bombs. They didn't have the charge in them, but they were otherwise the bomb. They wanted to trace the trajectory and just see how it, how it would work. And the press release from the National Nuclear Security Administration that runs the test site uh, said this, the, the primary objective of flight testing is to obtain reliability reliability, accuracy, and performance data under operational representative conditions. Such testing is a part of the qualification process of current alterations and life extension programs for nuclear weapons. Life, life extension programs for nuclear weapons in a country that can't give health care to all of its citizens, in a country where the life expectancy of our citizens is actually going down. Now $1.7 trillion towards life extension of, of nuclear weapons. And that was Brian Terrell. Brian lives at the Strangers and Guests Catholic Worker Farm in Malloy, Iowa. But as he said, you heard him say that he's visited many places across the planet. And uh, we're just about out of time and we'll be back um, next week with another half-hour installment, we'll be able to hear more from Brian and also from Lucille regarding environmental hypersensitivity. You've been listening to The Peril and the Promise from kcbpradio.org, produced by Adlai Fredrickson and Pegasus here at the Peace Life Center of Modesto. You can tune in every week at this time to learn about the peril that humans make for each other and the promise that we can make for a better world as community. Music on The Peril and the Promise on the Earth is by Alzara Getz and... Dorothy's melting.